Blog Talk Radio. Show is now in the air. My name is Robert Batista, and with over 200 shows in cyberspace, the Funky Writer Show is now a cultural icon. Our guests have ranged from big name authors who had hit movies made of their books to up and coming writers publishing their first story. And what do we all have in common? The love for the written word. Connect with us on the exciting Twitter page by going to at the Funky Writer. I write thrillers about normal people who get caught up in extraordinary circumstances. I write about fathers and mothers and children who somehow find the will and the wherewithal to suck up and to panic and fight on. They're heroic but they would never consider themselves to be heroes. Mostly, they would consider themselves to be survivors. These are the revealing words of today's guest, John Gilstrap. Welcome to the Funky Writer Show, John Gilstrap. What a delight to be here. Hi, Robert. And what a delight to have you. You're a prolific author. Wow. I've looked at your breadth of work. It is awesome. John, I'd like to start with the words I read to open the show that are in an essay on your website called Why I Write Thrillers. Ordinary people who get caught up in extraordinary circumstances. Why are you so drawn to these type of characters, and how did this way of storytelling begin for you? Well, finding the beginning is kind of hard. You know, as as a kid, I read everything from, you know, Hardy Boys and Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators and Alistair MacLean and Frederick Forsyth and, you know, so the and fell in love with all of Alfred Hitchcock's movies. So, you know, that somewhere in there lies lies the beginning of this. But in terms of of why I focus on the common person being stuck in the extraordinary circumstances because I think that's where the most drama is. Uh, we expect cops to be good cops, and we expect you know private investigators to know how to investigate. But when you got a family man, or in the case of one of the books, at all costs, you know he's a, he's an environmental engineer who suddenly is accused of murdering 16 people, and he didn't do it, and he's got a he's he's on the run, and and he's got a kid, and he's got you know to me that it's it's that common man who's who's stuck without 
real resources, uh, and, he, and he's got to claw his way out of it. I think that's the, the heart of drama. I would agree, definitely. John, you were a firefighter and an EMT for 15 years. How do those experiences shape and mold your writing today? Well, I think that it, it kind of gets back to what I just talked about. Um, the everyday guy, <clears throat> excuse me, I rode my first fire truck when I was, I don't know, 22 years old, 23 years old. And uh, you go through the training, and, and uh, I ultimately advanced through the ranks to the command ranks. But, you know, early on, you're 23 years old, and you walk into the worst moments of people's lives, and they expect you to make it better. And it was, it fell upon me to make it better. And i be honest with you, ask any, certainly on the, on the early side of their career, any emergency responder, they're winging it. You know, you're kind of making this stuff as you go along. You, the stuff you've learned in the, in the training schools, that's fine, but nothing ever happens that way. So you're, you're right. constantly winging it. And, and the, there's that realization of, like, oh, crap, I am 911. This is it. If I can't fix it, then nobody's going to be up, going to be able to fix it. So that notion of always being on the feather edge of of out of control while projecting control because somebody has to do that um, that has certainly informed the the subjects of my writing you know i've been shot at i've been threatened i've delivered babies i've i've held dead babies i've you know it's all of that the human drama of doing all of that becomes you know all gets it all gets stuffed away in in the file drawer and uh and and I think it does come out in my writing I think it it adds verisimilitude to my writing I am 911 wow that what a great title for a story I I think that's awesome um John you also write on your blog as a kid I lived for the opportunity to write short stories. <laughs> How did writing become so important to you at such a young age? And what were some of those early stories about when you were a kid? Oh, well, you know, the, the earliest stories were probably knockoffs of, of whatever the uh, the TV shows or whatever that I, that I was uh, jazzed by at the time. Um, I found, I've never been an athletic kid. I grew up in in a, in a very, it's called an interesting childhood, and it was an escape. It, it was a way for me to um, always win, and you know the, the the good guy was never going to be the the you know athletic jock. It was always going to be the kind of nerdy um, kid who yeah, that was that was me, and and it allows you to. Um, it allows you to go to a cool place where you have control and there's a transference that happens when you're in the zone as a writer. It's the same transference that happens when you're really reading a good book. And that is where the story that that you're reading as, as a reader becomes more real than, than the chair you're sitting in. And you start having this movie go on in your head. Right. And, and, and we call that a really good book. Well, as a writer, when you're really in the zone, the, the reality of that place is as vivid as the reality of the, the pad or the computer and, and the chair. So during those, those times, it's, it's a great 
it, it's a great escape. They call it psychosis if you don't get paid for it, I think. <laughs> I like uh, that uh, analogy and the term, the writing zone. And you've written so much and so many books. Do you get into that writing zone often, John, or is that rare? It's becoming more rare, I think. Um, it, when it does happen, it's it's a, a marvelous thing. Um, right. Normally, where where there's a lot of emotion in in the book, um, you know, that's that's when I'm I'm in that zone. That's what second drafts are about. Or few, I won't say second second through thirtieth drafts are about. Is <laughs> is, is is finding that you know, tapping into the emotion that's that's there. I used to, I don't know if it's still on or not, there was a show called Inside the Actors Studio. And um, right. where actors talk about the method, you know, and I've never been an actor, but what they describe as this business of, you know, you bring the emotions of of yourself into the embodiment of a character. For me, Writing is a lot like that. You go to the place in the right. point of view of, uh, that you're writing from, and then you smell and you feel and you hear and you know you you, you tap into that that emotion. You know, if, if you're not laughing at a funny scene and you're not crying at a sad scene, you're not there yet. And it's it's a matter of of finding that space. Uh, so the zone ultimately occurs with every scene. It doesn't necessarily occur uh, on the first draft. So, John, uh, would you say that maybe part of being in the zone is writing from all the five senses? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I think, um, you know, what we see and, and, and feel is one thing. Uh, what we smell and what we, you know, particularly when you get in the more you know, unpleasant side of, of, right. uh, of, of life, uh, smell is whether it's the smell of a house burning or it's the smell of somebody who's been dead for a while, or it's the smell of blood or it's the smell of leaking gasoline or it's, you know, that's very evocative. And, right. Uh, right. And I, I think it's important to include those. So let's talk about your first big hit, so to speak, writing and publishing Nathan's run and it's subsequently subsequent sale of the rights to Warner Brothers, a dream of so many authors. John, how did it feel at the time, hitting it big and riding the roller coaster wave of a quote unquote Hollywood author? You know, it was numbing, I think. Um, right. I got it at the time, I was the president of my own consulting firm. And we're talking 1995 now. And right. um, we were in a spot financially, you know, I was paying my employees, but not paying myself. And we had canceled newspapers and stuff, you know, just trying to, we weren't on the, at death's door, but things were really, really tight. And when I wrote Nathan's run and I sent it off and I found an agent and it's kind of an interesting story about that on my website. But if, when I finally found the agent within a week, she called and this is the way the phone call went. She called me at my office about seven o'clock at night, Eastern time. I live in Virginia. And she said, well, we, we got an offer on, on your book. And I said, that's great. And she said, it's, it's a uh, $250,000 two-book deal. And I just, you know, like choked. And she said, so, of course, I turned it down. 
I said, you did what? <laughs> and, you did what? <laughs> and, and she said that um, it didn't feel preemptive to her. That's the word she used. And she subsequently, then she said, before I panicked and, and passed out, she said, we got a one for more money than that. And it was so astonishing that when I hung up, I called home, I called my wife, and, and she didn't believe it. She said, no, John, it's a good book, but it's not that good a book. I mean, it's just, it's just not. <laughs> so, so I had to arrange a conference call between Joy, my wife at home, and my agent in New York. And had, she had to hear it directly from the agent that I was not making this up. So, um, so that night was probably, in, in, you know, it, it, you feel dizzy. It's like now we're right, here, right. You know, and and we had a seven-year-old son at home. You know, and it, it did the so we, I think we celebrated with like cheese crackers and cold duck or something. I mean, whatever we could find in the refrigerator. <laughs> but that was the beginning Talk of, about of a hell of a ride. It yes, just, yes, I'm sure. And then two days later, so just gonna say two days later was the movie deal, and uh, it was a bidding war between seven studios and. You know, it was just, it was like, holy crap, this is, you talk about a lot of life change units in, in three days, all stacked up. It was, it was pretty remarkable. John, I'm a Turner Classic movie buff. Uh, you talked about Inside the Actors Studio. I think it came on Turner's for a while. Um, and one of my favorite old movies was a movie called What Price Hollywood? And we always hear about how some artists sell their souls to make it in Hollywood. Was this something you saw firsthand when you were involved in this so-called dream factory? I, I, it's certainly there. I mean, there's a lot of folks who are willing to buy souls, um, but you have to have your soul available. And, you know, for, for me, um, I've, and I don't know if this is the fire service training or, or what, but I've always had a rather cynical and, uh, fact-based look at life and you know it, if you got to remember what's important it doesn't matter what you do for a living you know if if whether you work in a mine or you ride fire trucks or you write books or whatever it, it might be what's important is what you come home to what's important is family and and at you know normalcy and like i said our son was very little so i didn't um i didn't allow that to happen I just I never bought into the fact that they love me. They really love me. What they loved was a story that I happened to have written. I was I was just secondary to that, and that's fine. I had I had no problem with that. But I never actually thought they they wanted me in Hollywood. What they wanted was my work product. So I took okay. a very professional approach to it. You know, I'm a producer. Not a producer in, in the sense of the movies, but you know, it's like a right, uh, right, sure, a factory worker. You know, I'm producing the toothpaste, and 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 they're buying the toothpaste. It happens to be a book or a story. Understood. Before I get into the Jonathan Grave book series, I'd like to talk about the seeds that inspired the character. It's a nonfiction piece you co-authored called Six Minutes to Freedom. Talk about how you came to get involved with this particular book and how researching it led you into a whole new realm of writing new and exciting fiction. 
Well, at that point, we're talking around 2000, I think, maybe 1999, somewhere in there. Um, I was there was some difficulty with with the fiction after the first two books, and and it was clear that I needed to write something entirely different, you know, kind of shift gears. Right. And and at that point, I ran into a guy, a buddy of mine, uh, Patrick Barney. And he had just heard a fellow named Kurt Muse give a speech at a Rotary Club. And it's a story of Kurt Muse and, and a bunch of fellow Rotarians in 1989 who worked really hard to overthrow Manuel Noriega's regime in Panama. And Kurt was ultimately betrayed and arrested. And on the night he was arrested, his daughter and son had to flee the country by themselves or else they were going to get killed. And then ultimately he was rescued by Delta Force. So that's that's the the long or the short part of the long arc of the story. So in doing the research for the book, I could, I got access to the family. I got access to the co-conspirators. I got, what I couldn't get was anybody from Delta to talk to me. So, um, despite the fact that I have a background in explosives and weapons and all that kind of stuff going, going back in the day. And, and finally through a meeting, through meetings that included Senator Connie Mack and then, Brent Scowcroft, who was a national security advisor under Bush 41, and then ultimately with President Bush himself, 41, who was president at, at the time, I got a call um, from uh, uh, then General Boykin, Jerry Boykin, uh, who said, um, the guys will tell you whatever you want to hear. You know, feel free to talk to them. So I got this extraordinary access to the special forces community on the single condition, of course, that I would never reveal anything that was untoward you know the last thing i want to do is is compromise national security and at this point we were very much involved with iraq and afghanistan we're talking by this time it's like 2003 2004 and um so the access i got and the people i met made me realize that the delta operators like navy seals and and other uh, you know socom and you know, the the marsoc the, the the really highly qualified special operators Right, are right. family men who value home and family just as much as anybody else, and they're gentle people for the most part, um, but they can be pushed, obviously. They, what they do brings is involves extreme violence, but it's extreme violence for peaceful reasons. So that, that whole notion that these are, these are not the they're not as they're normally represented on TV or on, on movies. In my experience, I found them to be really nice guys who are, who have extraordinary skills. So when that was done after the, after six minutes to freedom came out, I had all of this research and I had this great idea for a character named Jonathan Grave, who is a former Delta operator who does freelance hostage rescue uh, in, in the civilian world. <laughs> About your research on this, you write, thanks to Kurt's cooperation, I gained access to people and places that lifelong civilians like me should never see, as you spoke about. The heroic mm -hmm. warriors I met during that research turned out to be nothing like their movie stereotypes. These were not only gentlemen, but gentle men who remained free of the kind of boasting and self-aggrandizement that I was expecting. So, in other words, John, you, we, are conditioned through movies to see these people as gods of ego. But 
as you write, in actuality, they are normal, down-to-earth human beings like anybody else. John, why in your estimation does there have to be this celluloid bait and switch? Oh, God. I mean, the route to insanity is to try to figure out why Hollywood people think the way Hollywood people think. Um, I think we, I think for the most part, we're comfortable with, uh, with stereotypes. We being the, the, the broadest we that, that we can think of. Um, <clears throat> stereotypes are easy. Um, it's certainly an easier film to shoot if somebody is is ego driven and inherently violent, and uh, you know there's there's less nuance to to be covered. Um, but but I don't I I can't begin to wonder why that is because personally I find those characters boring you know I, I think that the one dimensional uh, snake eating special forces the Chuck Norris not personally I don't know Chuck Norris but some of the characters he's played are just boring there's no, there's no there there there's a lot of violence a lot of gunplay a lot of special effects but, but it's not an interesting character Now we come to the Jonathan Gray book series. Great name for a character, by the way. Um, the first installment was No Mercy. Even though your lead protagonist was based on people you've met in research, how long did it take you to hit your stride and get the Jonathan Gray character down pat in your head? Well, that, that was... Um that was done through the process of writing. You know, it, it's like I had an idea of, of there was a skeleton of a character who had no skin and no heart. And then I put him into the opening sequence is a rescue that kind of goes wrong. And through that and him, the, the way he handled it and just the way the story evolved, I got more and more familiar with him. And, and, and sort of creating his world. He's, he's a philanthropist, uh, and uh, his father is, is a, he's serving a life sentence at a supermax prison in Colorado. And, and, but that kind of evolved during the writing process. That took a long time to write the first book, probably two years to write the first book and get it right. Because I was aware at the time, I was very consciously trying to create a series. So I was consciously trying to create an interesting world that not only was interesting in its own right, but provided me with opportunities for future stories. So to piggyback on this, um, as you fleshed out and gave him meat to those bones you spoke, you write, he's the finest friend you could ever have and the worst enemy. Can you explain what this means exactly? Oh, sure. Um, Jonathan is, he's, he's thoughtful, he's nice, he's kind. Um, he does not forgive a lie. Um, he does not forgive betrayal. That doesn't mean he kills people who betray him. It just means they will never be trusted again. <laughs> and, uh, it, and it's just, and that's the nature of, that world as you know as the outsider looking into the special forces world that's what they are they are intensely loyal they are focused on mission above self and if if you anybody who breaks that code is sort of banished forever and right um and quite honestly, you know, this, this is the part. I'm not nearly as badass as, as Jonathan is. But that's one thing that, that I share 
you know it's i don't betrayal is something i cannot tolerate and lying to me right. is i mean people will do it but they won't no, never get another opportunity i'm done with them right because what's right. the point i understand so and in his case you know if if um he does have extraordinary skills and if and if somebody would betray him or his team or put them in intentionally put them in some mortal jeopardy uh, they have a very very bad day Let's talk about John Gilstrap, the person. Where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? I grew up in uh, in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is outside Washington, D.C. Um, you know, now, I still live within six or eight miles of the house I grew up in. Um, it's an entirely different place now than it was when I grew up. It was kind of out in, in the country, but in a very military community, um, my dad was was career navy, and you know, all of the neighbors were some. All of my friends' fathers were some form of military. And it was during the Vietnam right. year, so you know, fathers kind of came and went. Nobody, uh, every all all the dads came home, uh, which which is good. Um, but it was uh, um, I was kind of a free range kid, and um, it, it's. You leave in the morning, like in the summer times. <laughs> you leave in the morning, and you have lunch at somebody's house, and then you have dinner at somebody else's house, and and ultimately you get home before dawn, right? And and repeat it. <laughs> it, was, it was not a bad childhood. I, family relationships were a little odd, um, but you know that's that's neither here nor there. But in terms of, right. you know, it was, it was sort of a seventies, sixties, seventies childhood, and. Um, a lot of naivete, a lot of you know ignorance on on larger issues. Uh, the, obviously, there was no internet. There was I don't even think the word existed at the time. So you know it was it was a time of of and even then I was writing. I wrote my first book I think when I was a senior in high school. And, and wow, not all that bad. It's not all that bad. Never published it. I mean, it was just stuck in a drawer. But um, I have I have since cannibalized it quite a bit. But then, you know, to do research, you had to go to the library, and then right. the card catalog. You know, and, and it was um, it wasn't bad. I mean, there were things, you know, if, if you could rejigger your your past, there are always things that you would change. But then you'd have to change everything. So uh, overall, not not bad. So you mentioned a couple of books before, like the Hardy Boys and Hitchcock, but uh, narrowing it down also, what were some of the books and authors that inspired you in your youth? Oh, well, hands down. I can tell the, um, the Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth was the book. Yes. I read that. My, my, my mom used to get the uh, Reader's Digest condensed books, right? And I read The Day of the Jackal as a condensed book about halfway through, and I thought, no, I want to read the whole thing. So I went to the drugstore, bought the paperback, went through it. And that was the book where I saw how a thriller is structured. That's the one right. where I saw I could actually see the skeleton, how he used uh, spacing or, uh, space breaks for pacing, and how a character who appeared here paid off four chapters later. And... I just and I love the book, but it's the first one I realized I can do this. It took me many years to figure out <laughs> the the finer points, but that was when I saw the structure of a, of a thriller, and I use that structure to this day. The the day of the jackal, um, uh, the movie itself to me was really a letdown. I don't know if you saw the movie. I did, and and you're right. Um, 
first of all, I, I disagreed with the casting, and uh, <laughs> and the book was just the book was so vivid in my mind, and yes. and they left out parts, and the part they left out that just angered me. In in the book, you know, you've got the Jacko Chacal and LaBelle, the, the the cop, and at the very last confrontation, when LaBelle kicks in the door and he says Chacal, and LaBelle says, and 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 the Jackal says LaBelle. There's that mutual, just a flash. It's two lines of dialogue, but it's mutual admiration. It's like you got me, and they drop that line out of the movie. It's not in the movie, and it just, it's the little things that irk. Yeah. Um, so, John, um, it is an awesome feat when your work is recognized with an award by your peers. One of the ones you received was the 2016 Thriller Award for Best Original Paperback for Against All Enemies. Wow. Awesome yeah, wow. How about that, Cole? Talk about yeah. how you were notified about getting this award and how did you respond to the recognition? I was sitting in the audience of a big banquet. I knew I'd been nominated. I was one of five and never, never thought I didn't even, this is my third nomination and I didn't even prepare remarks. Um, and then I heard my name and I sat, I was sitting next to a, a brilliant author named Mark Cameron, who was also nominated and they read my name and I said, was that me? He said, get up there, bro. You won. And so I went up and, and you know, you, you just, and you look out and you see all of these, these faces, they're wonderful writers. And so many of them are, are dear friends and to be recognized by your peers. I got to tell you, it, it is, it's literally breathtaking. I have no idea what I said. I hope it made sense. Um, but uh, it, yeah, a great, great honor. John, every author that I interview has a different time where they're most creative. Some authors can pull out a pen or a laptop and write anywhere at any time. But others need a special time and place to be creative. Which one are you? Um, I force myself to sit in the chair and write something every day. Um, because for so many years, for the, God, for eight books, I guess, maybe nine, um, I had a full-time job. I, was, I traveled a lot in the job, and so writing was always that thing you did in the evenings. And even to this day, that's probably my most, most prolific time is like five till nine o'clock. I'm trying to move it back during the work day because I don't, I don't have a day job anymore. Yay. Um, but it's, it's, you know, whenever you can. Whenever you can, I, what I can't do is wait for the inspiration. Not writing is, is an easy thing to do. I mean, I love what I do and I, right. love, I love the job, but you know, between the marketing and you know, Twitter and you know, others, there's, you got to have concentration and really sit down and sometimes go to a, to a dark place. You know, I mean, if the, the stories I write are not Christmas stories. So, um, and so I have to force myself on a daily basis to, to tie my butt to the chair and write something, um, even if it's crap, it, at least write something. Let's talk a little bit about the publishing process. How was your very first story published? And you did answer that when you got the agent. So I guess the question I should ask you is about an agent. Do you feel an agent is necessary 
if you want to really have success as an author, or or do you feel it's not necessary with how we have self-publishing and independent publishing? What, how are your feelings on this? Well, you know, this is kind of a minefield. Um, I've come to realize that everybody has a different idea of what success is. My idea of success is not selling hundreds of copies. I want to sell hundreds of thousands of copies. And I want right. to just sell ebook. I also want to be in paper. And I don't want to just be in this country. I want to be international. So with those as the goals, I don't, I don't know that it's possible to not have an agent and go in that right. direction. Um, and I wouldn't know because I've always had one. I, I, I came up through the traditional model. So I, I don't even know how to go about self-publishing a book. So, uh, so I could be all wet here. You know, we all speak from our own experience. We're all the heroes of our own story. Uh, so you know, I, I don't know what to say. I, I could not imagine doing the things I've done and negotiating the things that have been negotiated and solving the problems that have been solved without having an agent. I just, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. So that's, that's, that's me. And what about what you just mentioned earlier and what I call the 800 pound gorilla in the room, which is marketing. So many authors spend so much time writing and publishing their book, but have no clue on how and what it entails to market it. How do you handle the publicizing and marketing of your books? Well, you know, there again, I'm blessed. Uh, Kensington Publishing is one of the best publishers in the world, um, and they have a marketing department and they have a publicity department okay. that helps me. Okay. So, um, so the burden is a little different for me than for others, but I, but I believe with all my heart, it hasn't always been that way. You know, it's, you, it's early on, even with Kensington, I, I, I pulled a lot more than, than they did because I was still earning my way into that, that next level. Um, and through that, I have come to believe that there is nothing an author can do to influence the sales of his or her book. I think that it's a matter of uh, being available, certainly the social media thing, as long as the social media is not buy my book. You know, why am I going to buy your freaking book? Make me want to buy your book. You know, be, be interesting, be entertaining. It's just, but, but you know, it, it, you get these bots, you follow somebody, and it comes back to you and says, buy my book. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Well, in fact, yeah. I'm now inclined not to buy your book because you kind of piss me off. Happens all um, the time, exactly. It really does. But I think the, it's, it's the next book that sells the current book. You know, in the Jonathan Graves series, we get example, there, I think I just finished my ninth book in, in the series. The eighth book just came out, and I think the ninth or tenth, but whatever it is. So there's a whole bunch of them. But every time a new book drops, every July there's a new Jonathan Graves book. And, and it sells well, but the sales of No Mercy, the first book in the series, spike. So I have sold many times more copies of that first in the series than I have any others in the series. Because it's, it's like that's the one everybody goes back to. And um, so the idea in, 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 in this business, like any business, is you've got to take a long view. This, this business of instant gratification, um, you, you know, there's no writer that's as good in his first book as he is in his 10th or 15th book. You know, this is, it's a craft. And you've got to, you know, the edges get, get smoother and the joints get tighter. And, the, you know, it's, it's like building a house. The, the, the early ones, they leak 
more error than the later ones do because you learn from previous mistakes. So I think it's a huge mistake for authors so frustrated. You know, they throw, nobody knows who the hell you are. You throw a book out there and expect people to flock to it because you say on Twitter, right. you know, buy my book. It, it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't even make sense to me. So, but then again, you know, I'm in this, I'm in this kind of blessed space of having been doing it for a long time and always been part of the publishing model and starting out, you know, frankly, at, at <laughs> I, I went from high school to the major leagues, you know, um, and and, Good point. and and all that has been a blessing. So, you know, my experience is not what other people's experience is going to be, but I think other people need to, to realize that success is has to be viewed in the long view, not in today versus yesterday. Yes, as you say, John, instant gratification is rarely gratifying. I hear you loud and clear. So let's talk social media. I know you you talked a little bit about it earlier. I know you're on Twitter, Facebook, Goodreads, and such. Of the social media platforms, John, which one do you feel is the most beneficial for your brand, and which, in your estimation, is the best for writers? Or does each platform offer its own special compensations? Well, the only ones that I'm really active on are Twitter and Facebook. Um, I have accounts in the other, and I and I touch base periodically. But again, I got books I got to write. I got you can spend all day on social media. Um, right. Me, I think Twitter is probably most effective, and that's how you and I met each other. Was was that's through right. Twitter, and um, you know, I, it's I don't know what it, the number of followers is probably not all that important, but you know, you, you pick up a, a lot of followers over time, and the idea is to be interesting. You know, if you can be interesting, it took me forever to figure out how to to even say hello in less than 140 characters. <laughs> but Tell once, me about you get it. The knack, once you get the knack, I think it's very effective. Facebook, quite honestly, in, in my estimation, has with the election season being what it is, has become so toxic. And, de- you know, a lot of really angry people that it's, yeah. I don't I don't find it a pleasant place to visit anymore. So. So right now, I'm, I'm kind of all Twitter all the time. In closing, I have what I feel is a pertinent question for you, John. If, hypothetically speaking, a person Rip Van Winkled and just woke up from a 20-year sleep and wanted to read one of your stories, which one of your books would you recommend he read first and why? Oh wow! Um, you know, probably just one, right? It's it's one and out. That's right. Is that what would be okay. the first all, book at, you would recommend of your books? At all costs, which is the second book that I wrote. Um, it's it's the one that first of all it's got a heroic safety engineer. So you know, come on, it's got to be good. But um that's that's my wife's favorite book that that I've written out of all of them um so among the fiction at all costs which parenthetically is out of print except in ebook form you can get an ebook um or no mercy the first of of the grave books um and I'm, I'm I know I'm doing three here or there's 6 minutes to freedom which is the non-fiction book that kind of kicked everything off so that that would probably be depends on what people are trying trying to get into if, if they want to see the the modern gill strap the, the grave series start with no mercy you want to see 
kind of the developing yield strap, take a look at it at all costs. So what's next for John Gilstrap? What other irons do you have in the fire coming up? Well, most immediately, um, sometime next month. Uh, no, I'm sorry. This month, next week, um, nick of time, a standalone thriller. My first standalone in over a decade uh, comes out. It, it tells a story of a terminally ill teenage girl who she's had it with the hospital stuff and all that. So she runs off with her childhood crush, who happens to be an escaped murderer. What could possibly go wrong? Um, so Nick of Time, I, I'm very proud of that. And then in October, I've got a novella in an anthology, an X-Files anthology, that uh, is, is kind of cool. And then uh, next summer uh, comes uh, Final Target, the next in the Grave series that I've just now finished. Excellent. So contact, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, what do you want to give out as your contact information, websites, and how people can follow you? Well, I'm very stealthy. So I'm john at johngillstrap.com for email. <laughs> I am at johngillstrap on Twitter. And I am, my Facebook handle is johngillstrap. So that's, I, if if you're interested in finding me, I'm not hard to find. This has been the Funky Writer Show with me, Robert Batista. One of the easiest ways to peer into my soul is to download and read my free micro-story called My Baby Has No Name from Smashwords.com. My guest has been the distinguished award-winning author, John Gilstrap. You can go to his website, johngillstrap.com and feast your mind. Thank you so much, John, for being a guest on the Funky Writer Show. It's been a blast. It's been a pleasure. Have a great evening, John. You too. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. <laughs>